Earlier this week, I had the opportunity to mark something off of my bucket list. Last fall, I was driving with Susan and the kids. We were going somewhere. I don't even know where we were going. And one of my best friends growing up, a guy that I still uh, keep in touch with, a guy named Stephen. If you've been around church for a long time, you've heard me talk about Stephen and stories of growing up with Stephen. Stephen just sent me a simple text that said, I think I just found out that I have practice round tickets for the Masters. Any chance you want to go? I was driving, and so you can't text and drive, right? So I handed it to Susan and said, as quickly as you can, type back yes. So here's a picture of this past Wednesday, four of us, uh, friends from uh, growing up. We played kid league baseball together, went to school together, church together, um, all went to the Masters. And this is Lou on the end. He's a surgeon in Little Rock. Stephen, who is the one that got the tickets, my college roommate for four years, John, and then you know this guy, right? And so we got to go to the Masters, and it was just unbelievable, just beautiful. The only complaint was the heat index was 97 that day, which I don't know if you know this or not. That's hot, all right? But, I mean, it's just cool. You're walking around the course, and all of a sudden it goes, hey, somebody's about to hit in the fairway. So you slow down, and you go out in the fairway, and this is who's out in the fairway getting ready to hit. It's Tiger. And I don't know if you know who this guy is, but you may have heard him if you watched last couple of days. This guy's name is Jordan Spieth. He kind of went in the whole thing, right? And then we're walking along, and my friend goes, hey, I want to take your picture with Phil Mickelson. I was like, cool, here, take my picture. So here's my picture with Phil Mickelson. There's me, <laughs> and there's Phil. So you see Phil in the background. And so it's just this cool, you know, it's one of those things you've seen on TV. I mean, all my life I've watched it. Um, and just to be able to walk around and see, this was my viewpoint for most of the day. And this is the par three course, which is separate from the regular course that you see on TV. And it's on Wednesday they do this par three competition, and it's really cool. You get to see all kinds of people that you don't know, old retired players that come back and play and that kind of stuff. But this is the, the fifth green or the fifth, um, like, fairway into the green. That's the sixth green. And then the fourth is here. And it's just a cool afternoon to sit and watch. In fact, if you saw this on the news at any time, everybody's looking this way. Because we just heard the roar from when Jack Nichols, Nicholas hit his hole-in-one. Anybody know who Jack Nicholas is? Yeah, right? Greatest golfer possibly to ever live. We, and so we saw that, and then Jack and played with Gary Player and Ben Crenshaw and Tiger Woods and, and Roy McElroy and some dude from some band that was caddying for him. And we saw all these kind of people. Now, here's the thing. One of the guys in our group in the big golf fan, he doesn't play golf, and it was really cool for him. But for me, I love golf. I don't get to play near as much as I'd like to. I'm not near as good as I would like to be, but I love the game. And for me to sit there and watch them shoot was just amazing. Now, my love of golf actually started after I was in college and Susan and I started dating. Her dad still plays golf a lot. He's a huge golfer. And he said, I want to take you out and play golf. And I said, that's cool. I don't really have any clubs. And my brother said, well, I, I told Brian this. And he said, I'll let you borrow some clubs. Brian didn't tell me later. He gave up on those clubs because they were too hard to hit. Well, let's give those to a beginner. That would be great. And so I went out and played with my father-in-law. And as we stood on the first hole, I just kind of said, I just want to warn you, I hadn't hit a golf ball in years. I don't know what this is going to look like. And my future father-in-law said to me, I'll tell you what, if you make a bad shot on this hole, I'll give you a mulligan here, and I'll let you have a mulligan anytime else you need it for the rest of the day. Now, if you play golf, that's like amazing, right? Because what's a mulligan? Free. It means this. This is one. Forget this whole thing about a stew made from odds and ends, all right? It's this at the bottom. 
It's an extra stroke allowed after a poor shot, not counted on the scorecard. So here's what happens. Literally, on that first hole, I hit it about 30 feet. Kind of dribbles off, right? And he says, oh, tee it up, do it again. That didn't count. And then I hit one that I hit probably 250 yards straight right. And he said, just tee up another one, hit another one. And I, he let me hit until I got one in the middle. He's like, all right, that's time to go. There's your shot. Can you imagine if they did that at the Masters? Like, you're like, hey, don't worry, Tiger, don't worry about that shot and what you said after it. Just, you know, just hit it. Just hit another one and it won't count. The thing is, I love this about golf because it lets you be a lot better than you really are. At the end of the day, my scorecard for that day was like 95. I was like, man, I'm pretty good. And then I realized it's probably like 140 because I didn't count all the shots. Sometimes I need a mulligan in life. Like I wish there were moments that I could take back and act as if they never happened. That we could just wipe them off the scorecard, tee it up again, and let's hit it again. Man, I wish I would have never sent that email. I wish I could go back to like it had never happened. Man, I wish I would have said that. I I don't know what I was thinking when I said that. I didn't really mean it. I don't know why it came out. I wish I could go back and act as if it had never happened. Man, I wish I wouldn't have made that investment. Or taken that job. Or gone to that party. Or gone out on that date. Married that guy. And we think, what would happen if we could just erase all of our so-called mistakes? The thing is, we don't just need mulligans for momentary decisions we make in life. According to Scripture, you and I need a mulligan for the whole thing. Because Scripture teaches that if we fail just once, we have broken the law of God and we are never right with Him. In fact, some of you know this, but Romans 3.23 says this. It says, for all, y'all say that word for me, all, all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The interesting thing about this verse for me is two things. First of all, I don't know if you know this or not, but all means all, every. Every single person that has ever walked the face of the earth sins. That means that we do things that are not right before God. It means that we make mistakes. It means that we do things that we shouldn't do and we don't do things we should do. And this phrase here, fall short, means that we are continually, always, always falling short. We never measure up. And this tells me that all of us are in the same boat. There's no, it's not like horseshoes where if you get close, it's better. This is like all of us are in the same boat. There are no degrees of falling short of the glory of God. Every single one of us is condemned. Now, that's New Testament. If you like Old Testament better, here's what it says in Isaiah. All. There's that word again. What's that word? All. We like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We've all decided to go our own direction, to forget God and to move on without him. We've all done that. And Romans 6.23, the first part of it tells us, the wages of sin is death. The thing is, we all need a mulligan. We all need a do-over. We all need an undo button that we could go back and erase all those things. And luckily for us, fortunate for us, blessed for us, is reality that God provides a mulligan. But that's not what we call it in theology. That's not what we call it in the church. We call it a simple word. It's grace. And the amazing thing about grace is that it tells us that God 
loves and cares and gives us what we don't deserve in spite of the fact that we don't do anything to obtain it. We don't understand that because we live in what I call a two-way system. If you do this, you get rewarded. If you do this, you get punished. It starts at the early age. If you eat your broccoli, then you, what? You get pizza? What is this? Dessert, right? Who gives pizza for dessert? You right? If you eat your broccoli, then you get dessert, right? You, you get something if, if you'll do that. If you clean your room, I'll give you a gold star on the chart or I'll give you your allowance. I'll do something good for you. If you get good grades, you can pass. And if you pass, you can graduate. And if you graduate, you can go to college. And if you do well in college, you can get out of college and get a job. And once you get a job, you can do well. And if you do well in your job, you get paid for it. And you get more hours and you get more responsibility. Perhaps you do well enough, you get a promotion. And as you get a promotion, the good thing is the pay usually rises, the responsibility rises. The bad thing is if you don't do what you're supposed to once you get a promotion and the numbers fall, then suddenly they say, sorry, but somebody's got to be let go and you're it. And as you're let go, you can no longer provide for your family. You can't provide for your family. You can't even afford broccoli because broccoli is expensive these days. It's this whole give and take. It's a two-way system. One pastor has said that in life, the, the law is everywhere and grace is hard to find. We live with a long list of things to accomplish, to do. We do this kind of reciprocal relationship, this compliment. If, if you'll do this for me, I'll do this for you. We, we base our life upon it. You be my friend, I'll be your friend. You do what you're supposed to for me, I'll do what I'm supposed to for you. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You love me, I'll love you. You serve me, I'll serve you. And we live in this kind of system. It's even kind of the countries built around it that you earn what you deserve and that if you work hard enough and you do enough, we think you deserve to get paid in return. And sometimes, honestly, that's an easier way to live because we can know, well, you know what? Just give me three steps to a healthy marriage or five steps to being able uh, to solve my financial issues or two steps to a better career or 40 days to the job that I love. But all that kind of breaks down when life breaks down. And what happens when the person who does everything they could to be a good person over and over again suddenly finds out that the diagnosis is cancer? Or when the family does exactly what they think they're supposed to do and they're a very good person and then... One of their children makes some terrible decisions. What we find ourselves when we kind of live that give and take relationship is we find ourselves living our lives consistently trying to please other people or some standard that we've built up within ourselves. We've talked about in here, um, if you've been here, the, the way that Facebook makes people less happy. That if you study people that are on Facebook, the amount of time they spend on Facebook is almost proportionate to the amount of happiness they have. Now, our youth have spent a whole weekend talking about the difference between happiness and joy and finding that in the Lord. But just on a kind of a a, a surface level thing, that the longer you spend on Facebook, the less happy you are. And here's the reason. is because people don't put their real lives on Facebook. If you look at my Facebook, it looks like I live the most unbelievable life imaginable. My kids always look great. I'm going to the Masters. I'm having all this fun kind of stuff happening. You know what I don't put on there? Real life. It took us 45 minutes to get kids to bed tonight. And there was some screaming and there was some yelling and there was some, you know, what in the world is going on and get out, get back in your bed and what are you doing and let's go. I mean, nobody, I, I don't say nobody. Some people do put that stuff on Facebook. I don't put that stuff on Facebook. And as a result, you see all these idealized lives that people live and you somehow think that's what you have to obtain to. 
And we end up trying this give and take system in our lives, living a life that brings exhaustion, shame, and bitterness. If you're not careful, you can bring that into the church. And we somehow begin to imagine that God, yeah, we we know grace, we talk about grace, but listen, God really likes those people that do exactly what he wants them to do. And lives exactly like he wants them to live. That's the people, yeah, I know, all the grace stuff, yeah. But God really likes the people that do the right stuff. They have a more special place with God than other people. And here's what's interesting when you look at the Bible. We're going to look at this over the next few weeks. The Bible is not a book based on good people that somehow found their way to get to God. The Bible is a book of bad people who somehow God came down to find. And that's good news for you and me because I don't know what you think about yourself, but we are not good people. You are not good people. We're just not. But that's why we're going to talk about this thing called grace. Here's what one pastor said. And then we're going to look at a Bible story. The Bible is one long story of God meeting our rebellion with his rescue, our sin with his salvation, our guilt with his grace, our badness with his goodness. This is what we're going to talk about grace over the next few weeks. And this is the definition that I want to use for grace. And it's a pretty simple definition. And it's this. Grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. This is the person that shows up with Christmas with an exorbitant gift and you don't have anything to give them back. Grace is love coming at you that has nothing to do with you. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. Grace is a one-way love. Here's the thing. We talked about in our society, it's two ways. You do this, I'll do that. Grace doesn't have any kind of thing you have to give back. It is a one-way, unconditional, all-consuming love. Doesn't make demands, it just gives. From our view, it often gives to the wrong people. I mean, if you look in Scripture, Jesus is hanging out with prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners and people you wouldn't hang out with, and he's giving them grace, and the Pharisees get mad as everything about it. It's recklessly generous. It is uncomfortably promiscuous. It is extravagant in its love. It's excessive. And there's no story that shows that better than the parable Jesus told in Luke chapter 15. If you've got your Bibles... Turn to Luke 15. If not, the story will be up on the screen. In Luke chapter 15, at the very beginning, and we're going to look at the story at the end, but I want you to see this first first verse from the chapter because it sets the frame for the whole thing. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Just a quick question, all right? Help us out here. Are tax collectors and sinners in their day and time considered good people or bad people? Bad people, right? Now, let's just be honest. I don't know any time that people that are called a name sinners are considered good people. And nobody likes the tax man. No amens there, right? I mean, this, this week is tax week. Nobody like, so you out there, you love it when you get your check. Oh, I am so glad they took that much money out of my check this week. No, right? Nobody likes the tax man. So in their day and time, these are not the people hang out with. And Jesus is drawing near to him. To, to them, and they're drawing near to him. Here's what the Pharisees. Now, who are the Pharisees? In their day, good people or bad people? They're good people. We've read the Bible so much, we go, oh, those are the bad people. But in their day, they were considered the religious, church-going, good people. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Here's what happens. Jesus starts 
to minister to people that do not look like what they thought people that a prophet would minister to. Can I just be real honest with you for a second? If we, as First Baptist Phillipsville, actually started reaching the kinds of people that Jesus ministered to, this room would look a lot different on Sunday morning. The truth is, most of us are this. We're the good, moral, church-going folk. If Jesus were here, I'm not so sure he'd be camped out in a church on Sunday morning. Now, don't take that as mean to leave, all right? He'd be among the people we would go, why in the world is he with them? Why is he in Ferguson, Missouri? Why is he hanging out with those people? You're not going to believe where I heard he went to today and who he ate with. I mean, if he was really trying to do what God wants him to do, he wouldn't eat with those kind of people or talk to those kind of people. He wouldn't even discuss things with them. They're not worth discussing things with. Jesus tells them this story. He hears what they're thinking and he says, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Now, here's what that is equivalent to. He goes to him. When, it, when, when someone died, um, the father, when the father died, they would divide his estate. And what happened is, if you had two sons, the older son got two-thirds and the younger son got one-third. And all the older siblings said, apparently not many older siblings, all right? There you go. So you got two portions. So if there were three, the older son got half. The younger two got a quarter, all right? Girls did not figure into the equation in this time. So he has two sons at all that matters. So the younger one goes, we'll go back to that one for just a second, Steve. So the younger one says, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And what it means there is he is basically saying, Dad, right now, listen, you are better to me dead than alive. Could you give me my money as if you've already died? I'm cutting my relationship with you as a family and we're leaving. Now, let me just ask you a question. What would your dad have said if you walked up to him and said, I just wish you were dead already. Could you give me some money? We probably don't need to mention all that we would say. But what my dad probably would not have done is what this dad does, right? Here's what happens in the next verse. And he divided his property between them. By the way, this is not in the Dave Ramsey book of parenting your kids with money. If this guy would have read Proverbs, he would not have done this. It's a proverb, you realize. I mean, it's a parable, you realize. But he gives them the money. Now, many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, took a journey into the far country. That's, that's symbolic. It's far away as he can get. Into the, not only into the far country as far as distance, but also um, religiously, morally, as far as he could get away. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, how much had he spent? Everything. A severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. I mean, desperately in need. So he went. Hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. Now, quick question. Who is Jesus telling the story to? Pharisees and the scribes. They are what? They are Jews. What is not on the menu at a Jewish feast? Bacon, pork chops, pork loin, Real barbecue, not the Texas brisket stuff like the real hog barbecue. It's not there, right? Because they could not eat pigs. 
So when he's telling this story to the Pharisees and the scribes and they're discussing what's happening, he says this to him and he says, went and worked into the fields. Oh, that's good. He says the field of pigs. They're like that is as far down as you could ever get. Now, he gets first. He says, and he was longing to be fed with the pots. Now, I don't know exactly what they fed pigs back in that day. Here's my guess. It wasn't good. He didn't want to be just feeding the pigs. He wants to eat what they're eating. And no one gave him that. Let's stop there for a second, because here's what the point is. Jesus is trying to get these Pharisees and scribes to understand this guy is at the lowest possible point he could ever be at. A Jewish male has gone to the far country, squandered his wealth, found himself working at any place he could, which included a pigsty, and all he wants is the food the pigs are eating. That is as far down as you can get. And here's the point. Jesus is making the point that outside of Christ, we are as far down as we could ever be. We are the Jewish man in a pigsty longing to eat the pig food. The guy says, when he came to himself, he said, my dad's got guys that are his servants that are more than well fed. And here I sit and I'm hungry all the time. So he formulates a plan. I will arise. I'll go to my dad and I'll say, Dad, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of his hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. Now here's the thing. When Jesus tells this story, the scribes and the Pharisees are sitting there in their mind. I can tell you what they're thinking. He'll be lucky if the dad even acknowledges that he exists. Because in that day and time when you told your dad, I want my inheritance, it was basically saying, you're dead to me. And when a son said, you're dead to me, the father no longer recognized him as anybody. Most of you know the story. If not, here it is. While he was still a long way off. His father saw him. Now, what does it mean? If he's a far, long way off, what does that mean the dad's been doing? Looking. Waiting on him. He felt compassion. He ran and embraced him and kissed him. Here's the thing. All three of these things would have been social taboos in their days. In order to run, the guy, back in their day, you realize guys didn't wear jeans or pants. Guys wore like togas. They wore like tunics. In order to run, instead of it wrapping around your feet, they had to pull it up. And in those days and time, God, men, dignified men, did not run. They did not show their legs. And this guy sees his son, says, I don't care. My son who was dead is alive, pulls it up, runs to him. Then in the middle of everywhere, embraces him, loves him, kisses him, gives him all kinds of love and attention. And the son starts his speech. Dad, I've sinned against heaven before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, quick question here. At this moment, has the son done anything to deserve his dad's love and affection? In fact... He has done the opposite, right? He has purposely run away from his dad, smudged his family's name, squandered all the wealth. I mean, his dad's not getting that back. That's the point. You and I have nothing to be proud of because we have nothing to bring before God that gives us any reason to have him love us. And yet, he hikes up his tunic. And runs full force to embrace us and love us. Before the son can even finish this, the father says, bring the best robe. Put it on him. 
put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. What's interesting is most of us know this parable as the prodigal son. And we think that means the son, prodigal means the son that ran away. That's not what the word prodigal means. Prodigal means excessive or over the top. And what we have is not the prodigal son. We have the prodigal dad. Puts the best robe on it, gives him a ring, kills the fatted calf, the best of the herd. And throws a party like they hadn't seen in years. The story of grace is this. You and I have nothing of value at all to bring to God to earn his favor. And yet, he extravagantly loves us anyways. I read this week a a quote by a guy named Brennan Manning, who's an author. It's on grace. This is what he says. My message, unchanged for more than 50 years, is this. God loves you unconditionally, as you are, not as you should be, because nobody is as they should be. This is the message of grace. Grace that pays the eager beaver who works all day long the same wages as the grinning drunk who shows up at 10 till 5. A grace that hikes up the robe and runs breakneck toward the prodigal, reeking of sin, and wraps him up, decides to throw a party, no ifs, ands, or buts. The vulgar grace is indiscriminate compassion. It works without asking anything of us. Grace is sufficient even though we huff and puff with all our might to try to find something or someone it cannot cover. Grace is enough because Jesus is enough. Now, I don't know where you are today. I don't know if you're the prodigal son who has gone into the far country and for some reason you found your way back starting to come to your senses and you're wondering what God cares about and God is running to meet you. I don't know if you're the older brother. You know the story, right? The older brother gets mad as everything. I've been here all the time doing stuff all the time for you, but he didn't love the dad. He just wanted the benefits. And you don't understand that it's nothing we can do. It's just the love of Christ. In just a moment, we're going to have a time of response. Maybe for you, today is the day for you for the first time to come and say, I am coming to the Father. Maybe you are one that's walked away from the faith and you know it's time to come back. And today is the day that you are coming to the Father to receive the love that is extravagant from Him. Let's pray together.